0: This morning, scriptures from Revelation 22, 6 through 21. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evil doer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, and and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears these words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Zach. If you have your Bible, if you would keep it open to Revelation, we will start in chapter 12. Hold that open to chapter 12. we will take a look at the last half of the book this morning. But let's pray together. Father, we say thank you for your word. And we desire that your will would be effected in our lives through your word. Lord, we... um, commit ourselves to you and and entrust our souls to you because what we find in your word is that you are the one true and living God who has sent your only begotten son into the world to save those who would put faith in the Lord Jesus. And Lord, let that truth be true for all of us. Let that gospel, the goodness that you forgive sinners and you welcome into your fellowship those who would come to you through Jesus. Let that affect every one of us in this room. May we not go home the same way. Lord, there are so many competing uh, messages in our world, and this is a message that we need to hear today. And I ask for help in walking us through it. I pray for peace and patience for all of us to receive from your word what you intend for us to receive. So God, would you, would you just clear our minds and let us... Um, have the ability to focus in an undistracted way upon what your word is for us this very day. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We have been on a little bit of a journey uh, for about 11 weeks or so, making our way through the entire New Testament, and today we land at the very end. Uh, last week, we looked at part one of this yet to come. Our series is called Empty. The Y stands for yet to come. We looked at uh, Revelation as a kind of two-act drama, if you will. The first 11 chapters are, are act one as part one. We looked at last week, and today we'll look at the last 11 chapters, which is uh, part two. And I... I Probably you have one or two, one of two responses, I think, if you're like me. You either avoid the book of Revelation at all costs, or you like dig in and you just can't get out of it. Um, I, I have two recommendations. If you need some help, a book to help you, I have found two books very helpful. Uh, one for uh, those of you who just want something to study, uh, Craig Koster is a guy who wrote a book called Revelation and the End of All Things. This is a fantastic book. For you to just read on your own. It's a great initial kind of study and an overview to um, the entirety of the whole book. It helps you go through chapter by chapter, pull out what's happening, and avoid all of the confusion. He also wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation, which goes much deeper and is much more technical. Um, and if you want to know Greek words and, and all of this kind of stuff, that's the, the one to go to. But these are excellent books that help shape a, an understanding of what's happening in the book of Revelation, because if you're like me, it's really hard to get your head around what is going on in this entire book. But before we jump into the last section, let's just be reminded of a couple of things that we saw last week. And the first thing comes from verse 1 of chapter 1, where we discover that this, this revelation is primarily a revelation of Jesus Christ. The opening words of this book say, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. Jesus is the subject matter, the content being revealed, but he is also the means by which this revelation came. It was Jesus who commanded an angel and told the angel what to say and reveal to John. That's why we have this thing. This this revelation is a revelation of Jesus. So he is, is exposing himself throughout the pages of this book. Um, We also noted last week that the direct audience to whom this was initially written were seven churches in Asia, which is Western Turkey, Um, and so that is the original authors out of the churches to whom this was sent. But that number seven stands for complete, and it really points to a message that is intended for all churches. So Jesus is not merely singling out those seven as if nobody else is supposed to read this. He's actually intending for all his churches, all of his people to be benefiting by what is being revealed. But we have to keep that in mind to keep from going off on tangents that will import into the text things that are completely foreign from the original uh, recipients and what their understanding would be. We're going to let that help us provide an interpretive guideline for what would the original recipients have understood in this message. So that's going to help us. Um, And we also uh, understand from verse 1 that Jesus, the why he wrote this, was to reveal things that must soon take place. So to show this to his servants the things that must soon take place. Uh, Time is very confusing in this book. John is primarily not concerned about time. He is primarily concerned about communicating truth about Jesus. So we're, we're going to strive to see where Jesus is present through all of this. And as you go home, and if, if this sparks some study that you want to dig in, keep that in mind. Uh, this is primarily about revealing Jesus, and we get little glimpses of scenes here and there and visions that will sometimes fold back on themselves. For example, today, when we get to chapter 16, we will see a vision of, of what we saw in chapters 8 and 9 last week. It's a clarifying and a further unfolding of what we've already seen. So it's, it's how do you think about this book? When you, when you think about Revelation, don't think of, of us being on a jet that takes off from point A, flies up to 30,000 feet, goes directly to point B and lands. That's not the way to think about Revelation, especially this last half. The way to think about this is if a glider... A glider with no engine being pulled up into the air, and a glider will circle and float and come back on itself, and you'll get different views from different angles of the same scene. We're going to see a little bit of that today. We're going to see unfolding scenes that will crack open a vision, and then we'll see it, and then we'll circle around. We'll we'll go from heaven to earth. We'll see trouble and grief on earth, and we'll suddenly explode in worship with heavenly the angels singing loudly, and so this is a kind of circling view of, of we will get to point B, we do uh, take off at a place and we land at a place, but we spin around a little bit as we're moving there. So don't think of this as a linear unfolding, this is not chronological, you have to keep that in mind or you'll be exceedingly frustrated, like I was for about 75% of the week, trying to figure out how to explain this. So, if you, I like to know where are we going? What are some handles to hold on to? I want to give you three. As we think about these final three sections of of the the last 11 chapters, uh, the first section will be chapters 12 to 15, which is really about the beast and also about the lamb. Then we will see in chapters 15 to 19, a contrast between a a great prostitute or a harlot uh, compared with the bride of Christ. And then at the very end, chapters 19 and 22, the end sort of unfolds in a, a, like, An unfolding of chapters So there's this gradual unfolding But the final uh, conclusion of the book Will be chapters 19 to 22 Now what what is happening is The the storyline begins With Satan Who is uh, having a, a The movement of the text Sort of flows Satan in heaven Who is cast out of heaven And we will eventually see him In the end Cast from heaven to earth And then from the earth Into the abyss So there's this progression of Satan being progressively kicked out of God's kingdom and then... uh locked up away and thrown away into the abyss. In the middle of all of that, Satan acts and forces his destructive powers on the world through the means of a beast and a false prophet, and this is kind of in the form of a chiasm. If you're it's like an X, as a chi in Greek is an X, but you can see this as as Satan works out his destructive will through the beast and the false prophet who are given power to conquer over the saints, and then in the middle of that, we will see arising this picture of, of a harlot, which is a, a personification of a city who also uh, is riding on the beast, which signifies Satan. The beast then will turn and destroy the harlot, and they will begin to move out where the beast and the false prophet themselves will be conquered, and initially Satan kicked out and destroyed. So that's that's where we're going. I hope that is is helpful. It's hard to keep it all in mind, because I about pulled my hair out what little bit is left this week on trying to, to figure out what is happening here. Because the, the, the visions that arise aren't sequential. And it, it's like you know, it's like reading a book with your kid. You just can't, you jump from page to page, you know, if you have a little kid. I want to see this. What's on this picture? And you flip here. No, we have to go back here and finish the story. No, I want to see on page 75. We have to go back to 27. That, that's kind of what happens here. So we get different aspects of this unfolding vision of God's glory. So we'll start in chapter 12. And I'm just going to walk through this. So if you have your Bible and you want to join with me, uh, just kind of follow along. In chapter 12, in honor of Mother's Day, we begin with a mother. There is a sign that John sees in heaven, and it is of a, a pregnant woman. Who, she is a royal woman who is about to have a royal son. And we also then see another sign. Again, there's lots of symbolism here. So signs are pointers to realities beyond themselves. So this, uh, this woman is here, she's pregnant, she's about to give birth. Uh, she's going to give birth to a son who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And if, you're, if you've grown up in church, been listening to the Bible, that will, that will take you back to Psalm chapter 2 which is a, a description of the Messiah and how he will rule. So here, here's a clue. The sign is pointing to Messiah here. And then another sign is there is a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns in verse 3. And this we will, f- will discover as the chapter unfolds is, is a sign pointing to Satan. This dragon stands waiting Uh, And he sweeps down with his tail uh, a third of the stars from heaven, which probably points to the angels that uh, followed him in rebellion against God. So we get this this whisking away with a great tail, pulling in demonic uh, fallen angels after him. And he stands ready, waiting in the delivery room as this mother is about to give birth. His desire, we are told he is that uh, ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the of the whole world, so we 're told who the dragon represents. He is standing waiting as soon as this woman gives birth. he wants to destroy the child who is is born. so we have this vicious image of a, a woman in a very vulnerable position who um, is about to give birth, and she's, of, of course, this is her, her full attention, and then a dragon waiting to consume her child. But suddenly, God is with this woman and delivers and whisks up into heaven this son, this, this royal son, and, and the, the, the sun is set free, the dragon is left wondering what in the world happened. But he's enraged, he is totally ticked off. And so now the battle moves from earth to heaven. Right, so we're, we're symbolically going up into the heavens and we see this, this celestial battle between Satan and his demons and here's a little image of what that uh, might have looked like from the mind of a, a guy living in the 1400s. Um, he sees this heavenly battle unfolding and Michael and all of the holy angels fight against Satan and all of his demonic angels. They are defeated. Satan is defeated and he and all of his angels no longer have any room in heaven. They're kicked out and cast down to earth. And then a heavenly pronouncement uh, says this in, in 12, 10, 10 to 12, <clears throat> Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they have loved not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So very quickly, we see this, this symbolic representation of the birth of Jesus, his ascension into heaven, a battle that took place that was won because of his sacrifice. So we're, we're after the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, ascension of Jesus. All of that is conquered because of what he has done. So Satan is enraged. This dragon is enraged. He leaves. He's kicked out of heaven. He then turns and takes his anger out on the mother who uh, and chases her and she's given a, uh, eagle's wings to fly away into a secure place in the wilderness and be nourished. God protects her. So we see uh, different symbolism here. One of the things you notice in, in Revelation is she's the, probably Israel at the beginning of this, giving birth to Messiah, but then later at the end of the chapter, she's actually the mother of all Christians, all believers in Jesus is who this woman represents. And yet God protects her and, and delivers her. Now, we, at, at chapter 13, we, we are left as Satan, the, the woman flees, goes away. He's sort of standing on the seashore, gazing out in, over the ocean. Last verse of chapter 12, if you look at that. He's left looking and gazing and pondering. And then immediately in chapter 13, what we see is this beast that rises up out of the sea. And it is a beast that has 10 horns and seven heads, just like the dragon was described in chapter 12. So it's almost as if Satan begins plotting and planning and conjuring up another image in order to effect his destructive will. And this beast rises up out of the sea with seven heads and ten horns, and has the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, uh, the mouth of a lion, and the dragon then gives his power and authority to this beast. So there's this movement and progression of power. Then one of the heads of this dragon, one of the seven heads, is, is mortally wounded, Receives a blow that effects the death of this this particular head and yet suddenly that wound is healed and the head is raised up And everybody sees this everybody on earth sees what's happening and begins to worship this beast Because of the power that has overcome this mortal wound And so they say and respond who is like this beast who can fight against it And what are we seeing? we are seeing a kind of satanic replica of the resurrection of the lamb, right? You're beginning to learn something about Satan. He's a copycat. He is a cowardly copycat. So he, he mimics the truth by twisting and distorting and yet presenting something that looks like real power, so he he's presented this this replica of the lamb because the lamb was killed the lamb was raised again and lifted up, and even uh, the the praise of of the people of God who is like you O God you are glorious and mighty of your deeds that's echoed in the praise that the people turn back to this this beast, this beast then um, gives blasphemous words and utters uh, uh, blasphemy and haughty words against. God and against his uh, power and his throne. And this beast is given authority to conquer the saints. So there is a, a, a granting of authority to kill the saints. It was given over, his power extended over every tribe and people and language and nation. We've heard that same language applied to the lamb who purchased from his death people from every tribe and nation and people and language. So here again, this beast is, is, is copying what the lamb has done. And this uh, seven-headed beast would, to the original recipients, communicated Rome. Rome is situated on seven hills. Um, Rome covered many languages and peoples and expanses. Um, we have Roman emperors who declared themselves to be God and demanded to be worshipped. We have seen that. So this probably would have evoked Rome in the minds of, of these original recipients. And yet today, what does this say to us? I think what this communicates to us is there will always be men who will rise up and demand worship, whether they be princes or presidents, they want to be respected, and so we, we cannot marvel at pretend power, because you will see mighty displays of power as we move through the revelation, because that's a false power, but don't be swayed, where does that power take you is always the question to ask. What, what is the terminus of worship? What is being exalted? Is it self or is it Christ? It's always the test of the one who is uh, true or not. And we also see this beast makes everyone worship him, forces them to worship, except those whose names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Everybody worships this, this fantastic beast, except those whose names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain. What does this tell us? This points to the doctrine of election, that before time began, God had decided whom He would save, and names were written down in His book before the foundation of the world. It was determined who would be the objects of His grace. And then at this point in the vision, we we see this call for endurance. Right when periods of intesting come to test faith, this is thirteen ten. You you are called to endure. And you today, whatever you're struggling with, whatever your challenge is, whatever your sense of persecution is, here is a call for persevering in faith and letting nothing distract you from your focus on the Lord Jesus, because distractions will come. And immediately there comes another, a second beast rises up out of the land this time. The first one came up out of the sea, second one rises up out of the land. This will be referred to later as the false prophet. So we've seen a beast arise. Now we see a false prophet who will arise, who has two horns, like a lamb, again, pretending to be a lamb, who rises up with great authority, incredible authority, and he has a mouth like a dragon. He is filled with the spirit of the dragon. He demands worship of the beast, and he can call down fire from heaven. So this incredible power, even to call down fire from heaven, if you saw that, if you witnessed somebody call down fire from heaven, you'd probably think, he must be from God. Don't be deceived. Be careful. Again, he also then commands many um, deceiving signs. He uh, commands for a image to be created like a statue. He is then given the authority to give breath to that statue and cause it to talk. And he forces everyone to worship this beast. And he kills everyone who refuses. So imagine, wouldn't you be impressed if someone could make a statue talk? You think that this person has real power. And and Revelation reveals to us the devil has incredible power. Don't think that Satan, well, don't think he's not real. We live in a world probably that says Satan is not real. This is a fictional imagination, a personification of evil. Uh, Satan represents a very real spiritual being who gives his power in deceptive ways to other agents to act on his behalf. So don't be deceived. Keep your focus on the Lord Jesus. So as we get to the end of chapter 13, um, we also see now one of the more controversial aspects of the book of Revelation, which is this, this beastly number. We, uh, the beast causes those who worship the, uh, the image and the, the beast to be marked, verse 7, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one can buy or sell without this mark. The, the number is the number of the beast of its name. And in verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man right? And his number is 666. The point here is that the marking of this beast is a counterfeit to what we've already seen as the sealing of the saints. The saints have been sealed by God and protected from his wrath in previous chapter. And now we have this counterfeit marking. Again, the enemy is copying what he sees God doing. And if we were to ask ourselves, what would the original recipients have received, it probably would have thought of the practice in Greek of assigning a numerical value to every letter of the alphabet. So A is one, B is two, C is three. And then you can use a a number to represent a name. And there are some examples of this Uh, In history, in fact, uh, a graffiti artist in the city of Smyrna was discovered to have written this on a wall which says, I love her whose number is 1308. And of course, if you're in the eighth grade, you're like, who is it, right? You get your math book out and now math is really interesting. So you can figure out who who this person is. So this is probably a practice that was present. um, and, And the question is now, who does it represent? The answer is we don't know. If you know the name, you can figure out the number. But to take the number and figure out a name is much more difficult. And yet, lots of linguistic and mathematical gymnastics have been performed. And Hitler, his name turns out to be 666 and his numerical value when translated into Latin, also one of the popes. So there's lots of ways you can, can, can figure out some crazy things that happen. And yet, the guarding of all of this is, what is the intent here? Does God want you? Is this a secret code for you to spend hours and hours trying to figure out it's actually Obama or somebody else like I have heard? The point is there will always, this is a number of a man who represents someone who opposes Christ. I don't think this is limited to one time or one place. We're constantly having people who rise up and assert their authority in order to demand worship and respect. We love the praise of people, don't we? That's, That's one of our greatest weaknesses. So be on guard for anyone who sets himself up as an object of worship no matter what number his name works out to be and yet within if we flip over into chapter 14 we, we okay so we've been in heaven we've we've been on earth seeing this unfolding drama now in chapter 14 we're suddenly catapulted in heaven where Jesus stands on the high ground with all of his saints around him whose name the god the father is written on their forehead they are sealed protected from the unfolding wrath of God. He is standing and there is an angelic pronouncement that Babylon the Great. Now we have this introduction to Babylon, which in scripture often refers to Rome, but we will see throughout the rest of this book. it, 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 It stands for all of the sinful and wicked rebellion against God and against his standards. So fallen is Babylon the great. And, and then there is this warning that those who have taken the number of the beast and have worshiped him will be tormented forever and ever. And there is no rest night or day for these people. And then we have again a call for endurance called to continue in faith. So we have the introduction to hell. We have the, 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 the Babylon uh, standing for all of the rebellion on earth. And then we move out of that scene, that scene of worship in chapter 14, the first half. And then the end, we see this, this image of Jesus standing and reaping the earth. This goes back to Matthew 13, where Jesus stands with a sickle in his hand, harvesting the earth, because the time has come, and the the earth is fully ripe, we are told. Um, There's a a scene of judgment that unfolds, and then um, we're interrupted with with songs of praise. Chapter 15 then opens another sign in this heavenly vision that John is seeing. And those who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of his name are standing beside a glassy sea praising Jesus and singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb who have conquered by the word of his testimony. So we we, we go back and forth between different scenes, and I know you'll get glassy-eyed and lost in all of this, but it's moving somewhere. John is taking us on an unfolding uh, understanding of who Jesus is. He is actually the one to be worshipped. He's the one through whom this world will be judged, as Paul said. God has appointed one man to be the judge of all humans, and his name is Christ Jesus. So now this takes us into the next scene, which is part two, the prostitute and the bride. So Babylon has been introduced. So chapters 15 to 19, we see the unfolding bowls, these seven bowl judgments, which are actually an expansion of the seven trumpets, which we saw last week. Some of these plagues are exactly the same as what we see in Egypt. Um, The water turning to blood, sores on people, uh, darkness, frogs, and hail. All of this unfold upon the judgment of this great prostitute. And so uh, each of these bowls are are increasingly more severe. The the last one uh, cracks open the earth with a mighty earthquake. And then the judgment of this prostitute called uh, Babylon the Great unfolds. And John is carried away in the spirit to see what is happening. Now, she's pictured this, and again, this this Babylon, the city, stands for the rebellion and sinful, sexual idolatry and all wickedness that is opposed to God. But she's decorated beautifully in silk and fine clothes with pearls and robes, and she is sitting on a beast, which is symbolic of, of mighty power. She's beautiful from the outside, and she's holding a golden cup. She's wealthy, and yet what's inside the cup is is sewage effectively is what we discover this a full of abominations is the word that is used to describe what's happened here and yet babylon the great we are told is the mother of all prostitutes and abominations on the earth again uh, this is the mother of all sin and wickedness on the earth. And she is also drunk with the blood of the saints of the martyrs of Jesus. So this, this represents delight in Christians being killed. So those in the earth who would delight in the destruction of, of Christians, she is drunk on this. She's delighted and indulged in all of uh, this kind of martyrdom. Now the prostitute sits upon the beast with seven heads and ten horns, which represents Satan, as we have already seen. Uh, Rome sits on seven hills. And so if if you look at a map, you can see this, but this, we are told by the angel, this is what the seven heads represents is the the city of Rome. And these seven heads also represent seven kings who five have already come. One, John says, the angel says is now, and one is yet to come. The 10 crowns represent 10 kings who have not yet come. So here again, we see the struggle of understanding. This is not a sequential unfolding of a vision. Some of this refers to events in the past. Some of it refers to events in the present. Some point to the future. So it's not easy for us to draw hard lines on what is happening here. But as we un- unfold this in, in chapter 17, um, we see uh, the great prostitute sitting on this beast who is then judged. And, and uh, in 18, we move to chapter 18, we see essentially a funeral procession for the, the great prostitute who is Babylon. Um, in in the the whole chapter of 18 is dedicated to the destruction of the city of Babylon. And what happens is, these uh, seven-headed monster, this beast that she is sitting on, turns against her and destroys her. Because as verse uh, 17, 17 says, God put it into the hearts of those to carry out his purpose. So he uses the very source of her power to destroy her. And, and caused her own destruction. And we are told that she is burnt up. And she represents a great city that had dominion over all of the kings of the earth. So all opposition against the people of God are represented by this city. And now the judgment is unfolding upon this city. And a city that is intended to be for good and for benefit for mankind suddenly turns and becomes an object of of judgment. And a voice from heaven then warns, come out of the city. There is a call, even in the midst of this judgment, leave wickedness. Repent of ungodliness. And this stands for all of us. Throughout the book of Revelation, there will be instances which you will see that they refuse to repent. They refuse to repent. They refuse to repent. Implicit in that for those of us who are reading is a call, don't be like them. Don't refuse to repent. Humble yourself before this mighty God and now repent. Repent. And as the chapter unfolds, where you would expect at a funeral service there to be a eulogy, what we find is actually a recording of all of the sins of the city. She lived in luxury and thought she would never be uh, found out. She had... um, countless wicked deeds. God counts her iniquities and numbers them. And the chiefest of all of her sins, we are told, is that in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints who were slain on the earth. And so God then says, I will unfold my judgment in a single day and then narrows it into a single cataclysmic hour in which judgment will be poured out on this city in one go. There are mourners here. At the end of chapter 18, we see merchants and kings and and captains of ships and seafaring men who stand back and watch the destruction of the city and weep and mourn. And at first you think, They're mourning for the loss of life of of the the person in this, of the people in this city. And yet we discover as the chapter unfolds, they're not at all concerned about the people in the city who have been lost. They're concerned about their ships, which are still full of cargo and have no one to buy their goods. So there's a sense of selfishness that erupts in this, even though there's mourning. It's not for people. It's because their stream of revenue has been cut off. Now, who is this city? What does she represent? Babylon is a, this detestable prostitute is a satanic counterfeit for the bride of Christ, which is called the holy city New Jerusalem. So we see the judgment on this this prostitute. And at the end of the chapter is this mourning for Babylon, which is destroyed. And at the beginning of chapter 19, which we now then transition to the next scene, there is praise in heaven over the judgment on wickedness and all evil. Heaven sings hallelujah because God has now judged the evil that we find in this city. And the hallelujah chorus that Handel wrote into his Messiah came from chapter 19. Just a reminder, we sing concepts found in the book of Revelation all the time. I don't know if you know this or not. I didn't realize that until I started reading through this. We sang it this morning in songs we sing. There are hymns again and again that refer to aspects that are proclaimed through the book of Revelation. So if you want to do a study on hymnology, you're going to spend a lot of time in this book. And yet heaven begins proclaiming. Uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 19. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of the servants. So God's judgment is true and right and just, even though it means the destruction of those who are wicked and love sinfulness. So heaven sings of this hallelujah praise that the prostitute is done away with, which now opens up a vista to be introduced into the bride of Christ. And so at the last half of chapter 19 in verse 8, sorry, 6, we, we see uh, there was a voice of a great multitude singing hallelujah, right? For our Lord, our God, he almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. So we see this progression. The bride is is ready. She's dressed in white. And and so we had the prostitute who is judged now makes way for the bride. And she is the bride of the lamb, we are told. Now who's the lamb? Let's make sure you're still awake with me. You still with me? Who's the lamb? Did you know Jesus is gonna get married? He's not gonna be single forever. And here we get this little picture of a marriage supper which is beginning and blessings are presented in verse 9 for those who are invited to this marriage ceremony of the Lamb. And so there's this excitement. Jesus' bachelor days are over. I know there's a bunch of you in this room who wish yours were over too. And so this is relevant for us here. The celebration begins. This joy begins and blessing is pronounced on all of those who are witnessing. Jesus' bride is ready. The time has come. The fullness of time has arrived. John passes out from joy. When he sees this, he falls on his face. And then we get this little interruption John falls down at the feet of this angel and begins to, to worship him. And the angel says, wait wait a minute, stop, don't do that. Um, and, and we get this interruption in this movement towards the celebration of the blessing of the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it, it is almost as if Jesus gets an email that there's still some battles yet to fight. So in chapter 11 we see this sad interruption. He takes off his tux and he puts on a white robe and he goes out to battle. He leaves the wedding hall. He goes out into the stable and gets on a white horse and then he rides out. And and there's a little bit of mystery here. In chapter 11, we're told the one riding on this white horse, he is faithful, he is true. In righteousness, he makes war. He is called in verse 13, the word of God. So now we know who he is. And a sword comes out of his mouth on the back of his robe and on his thigh is written king of kings and lord of hordes. He is at the head of an entire angelic army dressed in white, Riding on white horses. So get the picture for just a second. Jesus' wedding ceremony has just been interrupted. He was about to get married, and it is almost as if now there's yet a battle. Okay, we've taken care of the prostitute, but we still have the false prophet, and we still have the beast, and we still have Satan to deal with. And so Jesus goes out at the head of a mighty army. And if you've anybody seen the Lord of the Rings, Okay, so we have two battles because the, uh, the 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 false prophet and the the beast begin to mount their armies. So, picture it: on one side of the scene is Jesus, flaming-eyed, white-haired, sword-mouthed Jesus, leading a host of angels across the plains of this expanse which separates heaven and earth, charging towards the enemies. And over here, the beast, the false prophet, charging towards them. There's about to be this battle, and you can picture it, right? The The camera zooms in as they get close, you see them riding their horses, he's growling, you see the angels, you know, gloriously riding. And just about as they're coming together, all of a sudden, all we hear is, and the beast and the false prophet were captured and thrown into the lake of the fire. There's no battle. I mean, where's the fighting and the hand-to-hand combat? Where's the sword and, and the drama as the hero and the heroine fighting each other in order to get to this, the climax of the victory? It, the, the, Jesus just speaks a word, and it's over. The beast, the false prophet thrown alive into the lake of fire, which is absolutely astounding. They're simply captured. It just happens. <laughs> off they go. And then Jesus, um, he's off for a thousand years. What we see is this marriage supper interrupted and it's like, honey, I'll be back in a thousand years. Will you wait for me? So now we move into chapter 20, which is this millennial kingdom, which is, you know, thousands and thousands of pages have been spilled on what, uh, ink has been spilled on what this actually is and when this actually happens. And what astounded me is when I actually read it, there's one little paragraph that explains what happens in this millennial kingdom. Those who have been beheaded for the sake of Christ rise, it's called the first resurrection, and reigns with him for a thousand years. They come to life. Nobody else is resurrected, just them. They reign for him until the end. Satan is, is put into a, a... He's chained up at the beginning of this thousand-year period. And then there's this, this, this period of peace and, and goodness for God's people. And then that's, that's all we're told. I, I mean, people go through chapters and chapters of when the millennium happens. And, and I wonder... We have to realize this is symbolic, right? Satan probably doesn't have seven heads. He's probably not a, a physical, actual red dragon. And none of us have ever stumbled across the, the lid to the bottomless abyss while we're out hiking. Probably not actually real. But it represents real realities and truth and yet this thousand year period i don't know if it's a literal thousand year period or not i kind of think it's not i think it's probably a long period of time in which we're to understand that jesus is reigning and then after which after this thousand year period satan is released and guess what happens again Another battle. Satan was not reformed in his time in the, in the thousand-year prison sentence. His character was not changed. He was not redeemed at all. He goes right back to opposing the Lord of heaven and musters up an a, a army from the four corners of the earth called Gog and Magog who come to battle Jesus. And guess what happens again? Jesus is called out and and you see it is this horde of countless people are coming to fight Jesus. And again, we see no battle. There is simply an instantaneous capturing of Satan who is thrown into the lake of fire with the, the false prophet and the beast who is also there. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and he is done. That's the end of Satan. He is completely done for. And then there is this resurrection to the final great white throne judgment at the end of chapter twenty. And we're we're getting close as the end is unfolding. Uh, Everybody then is, every human being, every soul, whether in the sea or in death or Hades or any place is what is communicated, all are resurrected and brought before the final judgment seat of God, and books were opened books of the book of the Lamb and books of deeds. Those who were written in the Lamb's book of life and also books that recorded everything that we had done and all of us will be judged according to what we have done. And death and Hades at the end of this judgment are also thrown into the lake of fire. Every enemy is now put under the feet of Christ and anyone else who was not written in the name of the book of life was also thrown into the lake of fire. This is not symbolic in the sense of uh, it's not real. Hell is a real place. This is affirmed throughout this book. Jesus affirmed it throughout his teaching. And why is this written? I mean, these are terrible words. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Why is that recorded? It is recorded so that you will change the direction of your soul and that you will stop worshiping anything other than Jesus and turn wholeheartedly to Him. Implicit in why this this incredible revelation is given is is a fact that Jesus is revealed again and again to be a judge to whom we must give an account. Every one of us, every human being will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the question is, will will He welcome you as Savior and Lord or will he condemn you as the one who knows the secrets of your heart? That, that is the invitation for this book, is to worship Jesus gladly and to submit to him. And so after that period of judgment, then we see this in chapter 21. A new heaven and a new earth come together. There is a blending of the two realms. The heavenly realm and the earthly realm are brought together. Sea is no more, old things have passed away, and there is a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, out of, from God. Verse 3. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. Here again is that wonderful promise that we saw Back at the very beginning of Exodus, when God pronounced to his people, I will be your God, Exodus 6, 7, I take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am your Lord who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's marriage vows. Once again, being reaffirmed here as we're brought together, finally we get to this, this union of, of heaven and earth and God with his people. He wipes away every tear. Death is no more. There's no more mourning, no more crying. And, and this, the angel commands John, write this down this is true. These words are faithful and true. And so here we see the curse is undone. Everything that separated humanity from God are removed so that we can enjoy his company. The curse is reversed. The blood of the lamb has atoned for the sins of all who put their faith in him. And then the holy city now comes together. So the prostitute who was a, a false or a counterfeit bride, is now replaced with a true bride who is the people of God, dressed in white because of their righteous deeds, and then coming down from heaven, this bride is the wife of the Lamb, in verse 9, the holy city, New Jerusalem. It's not the city itself as brick and mortar, it's the people of God who are prepared for Christ. That's in chapter 21. There's this sweet Union of the celebration of the wedding of of the people of God with Christ. And then in that city, in that merging, that coming together, we see in chapter 22, the very end, um, this river of life that flows from the throne that is the uh, the source of eternal life and there's a there's a tree of life which grows on both sides of the river which people are then given permission to eat from as it yields fruit one different kind for every month 12 different kinds so we we now come to the end of where we It's the same image of where we started in the beginning. We have a tree in a garden. Now we have a garden in the middle of a city. There's a tree of life at the beginning. There is here a tree of life at the end. What we were kicked out of at the beginning, we have now been welcomed into at the end. And so here is the hope for all of humanity. And who has done this? Who has bought this privilege? It is the Lord Jesus. The very last words... Uh, that we find in the book here in Revelation, right? He who testifies to these things in verse 20, surely I am coming soon. These are the words of Jesus. I am coming soon. And John responds to that and says, amen, come Lord Jesus, come. Jesus is revealed as the only one worthy of worship in this book He is the only lamb who died and his sin atoned. No false beast who died and pretended and came back to life. No false signs. He alone is the risen and living son of God. So what is the purpose of revelation? It's to reveal Christ as the source of salvation and atonement. He's the end of the book. The end is not an event. It's, It's a person. Presented from the beginning of this book, the revelation of Jesus to the very end, I'm coming, are the words of Jesus. And so the question for us is will you worship him? Will you surrender your life to him who has offered up his life for you? Would you delight in this sacrifice that has accomplished freedom and will one day be fully given to all of us when death is no more? and every soul will be resurrected, and we stand before him. Are you ready for that day? Are, are you prepared to meet your maker? I, I remember before my dad passed away, he was, uh, died of, of cancer. He was struggling at the very end, and I wanted to get to him. I was here. He's in Kentucky. Hopped on a plane. I flew to Kentucky. I went on the plane. I was praying, Lord, I have to ask him, please, Let him stay alive until I can ask him one more time, are you ready to meet your maker? When I got to Louisville, the Lord answered that uh, request. I I went to my dad and I I said that to him. I said, are you ready to meet your maker? And he said, I was ready a couple years ago. I want to get out of this place. (laughs) It was sweet. That gave me great comfort. And I just wonder how many of us look forward to meeting Jesus face to face. No, no pretending, no makeup, right? No context. I mean, I, I couldn't see him very well. I had to look through the bottom of my, no, no faulty eyesight, no diminished screen between us, no separation. Are you ready to look God and your Lord Jesus face to face and say, I want to come home to you? Right, that's, that's what revelation is about. Come home to your creator. Worship him with all of your heart. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to sing some worship to the Lord. But would you you just pray with me? Lord Jesus, we see heaven ringing with praise and songs throughout the course of, of these unfolding chapters. It seems like singing happens daily, hourly in heaven. And Lord, we, we are so blind, we need your help to see. And Jesus, I pray that your, your spirit would grant the insight that each of us need to turn away from our sins, to confess our sins, to admit that we get so easily entangled with the things of this world. And yet, Jesus, you stand in blazing glory. And we need help to cherish you. Let every heart in this room cherish you and love you. And let us forsake all others and be true to you alone until death separates us. And then we will be reunited with you forever. So Lord, our hearts yearn to praise you forever. Let us do that right now. And Lord, if there's someone in this room who does not yet know you sweetly and intimately, I pray even as we sing, that that person would confess sins to you and know that you can hear, even though we can't see you, you hear our prayers, the cries of our hearts. You, You listen from heaven. And you can hear the the repentant cries of a, a person who wants to turn away from sin and turn to you. God, let the cry of the heart go out as we sing for forgiveness and for grace and goodness and ultimately for worship. And it is in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.